how do you price an ad on your channel? That's probably the most common question we get from other creators. And it was the biggest question we had when we first started on YouTube. So we're hosting a live workshop on how to price yourself. This is everything that we've learned in the past 13 years of being on YouTube and our simple three-step process that'll help you develop concrete pricing. So if you wanna join us for this live session, just go to colinandsamir.com slash live. Enter your email and you'll get all the information about our live event on May 9th. All right, hope you enjoy this episode of The Colin and Samir Show. Greater support. This is Colin. How may I help you? Yeah. Hi, Colin. I have a question for you. Wait a minute. Is this Samir? What? From the Colin and Samir show? I can't do this bit any longer. It sounds like Samir. (laughs) I can't. I can't hold this bit any longer. But is it Samir? It is Samir. And welcome to this episode of Creator Support, the show where creators are creating stuff. And you know what? Sometimes it falls down and then you got to brace it and support it like the legs of a table. That is what this show is. <laughs> the, the, the short form version of that is you guys ask us questions and we answer them. Mm, that on, sounds better. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about YouTube's new feature showing retention graphs publicly. We're also going to talk about what the economic downturn could mean for creators, as well as talk about how to negotiate pricing as a creator. Hot episode this week, Colin. Not hotter than Arizona, where we just flew back from. We'll tell you more about that. All right, here we go. So we just got back into LA from Arizona, which Arizona, very hot place. If you've never been, middle of the desert, unbelievably hot. But we were there with Shopify and it was called the Creator Commerce Summit. So we got to actually meet with people who were from the e-commerce world, as well as just creatives from the non-YouTube world. And that was really refreshing. Extremely refreshing. And it made me want to have guests like that on our show. I think there's so many perspectives that we can learn from outside of just creators. Yeah. Sometimes just talking to people in the YouTube world, like there's an echo chamber that, that create, that gets created. And I think this event for me, the, the primary thing is it made me kind of take a look out and broaden the term creator. Think about people who are making brands. Think about people who are, um, you know, launching things that are beyond video. And that was really cool. Now, to come back straight over to video and YouTube, YouTube this week launched a feature where when you're watching a YouTube video, you can see a graph of the most engaged parts of the video, and that allows you to skip directly to those parts, like scrub and skip directly. Now, why would YouTube do this? Because that's YouTube's advantage, that they are a long-form video platform, that someone will sit down and watch five to 10 minutes of a video and really connect with the creator and feel like they know them and you know, want to watch more of them. I feel like with this feature, viewers can come watch the most exciting 10 seconds and then leave. It's like turning YouTube potentially into TikTok and Instagram Reels uh, behavior. It feels like a direct reaction to TikTok and, and even YouTube Shorts maybe, where the behavior of an audience member is to open a video, see the most engaging bit, and then move to the next video. But for creators like us who are making videos that are hour, hour plus, you know, 20 minutes, that could be significantly detrimental to what we're trying to build and the depth of connection we're trying to build with our audience. It it might force podcasters and, and talk show hosts like us to actually release shorter and shorter content on YouTube and then keep longer form content here on the podcast feed. Like it might be, it might move to like a clips behavior if that really keeps up. Yeah. And I mean, also with YouTube now, you have the ability as a 
creator to enable your video for clipping. So other people who are watching can take your video, clip out parts, and make their own videos out of it, like remix it, which we find you know, on TikTok and on Instagram Reels. And as much as I love that, I do want to see audiences being able to create and take video from here and there. With this feature now, which shows you where the most engaging moment is, other people could potentially come, grab your most interesting moment, remix it into their own short. Right, yeah. I actually started to see a lot more clips from our interview with Mr. Beast as shorts on other people's channels. Uh, one particularly I saw, which was actually a really, I just like found myself engaged in the short. I know it's our own interview, but it was really interesting. It had 4 man, million views. Get over yourself, man. <laughs> it had 4 million views and it was about how Jimmy dropped out of college. And I was like, ooh, that was a good short. But I do agree. It's, it, I guess maybe the content ID system needs to be picked up more. If someone does click directly on the video to remix it into a short, we should probably be notified or, or it should be connected to our, you know, overall metrics. Now, on the flip side of all of this, where YouTube might be moving more into shorter and shorter form content, TikTok this week announced live subscriptions, a, a very similar feature to Twitch, where people are, you know, that basically the suggestion is that audiences will pay a subscription a monthly subscription to access live streams from TikTok creators. This also comes with custom emotes, which is a very Twitch-like feature. YouTube also has this in their live subscription membership. But for TikTok, for such a short-form platform, it's moving in the opposite direction, suggesting longer format. Yeah, I, I see it more as every app wants to be everything. I don't know if adding the feature means they're moving in that direction. You know, Instagram tested this live subscription feature as well. I don't think it's rolled out to everyone, but these types of apps and platforms just have to try so many things to see what works. I had a friend text me about the fact that YouTube is going long on shoppable content. Right. And he was like, this seems kind of like a weird move for them. And I yeah. just said back to him, you know, they'd have to try everything yeah. to see what works. And if it doesn't work, they'll stop it. Amazon is also hiring someone for um, live shopping creator partnerships. So it is interesting that every company wants to be everything right now. And not the Colin and Samir show. That's right. That much. That's right. Unless we start doing more things. Yeah, that's true. There, there was actually a funny clip that emerged this week uh, on Mr. Beast reacts and we'll play it real quick. Is that Colin and Samir? When did Colin and Samir do house reviews? I don't know. You are the one that paid the guy to put these clips together. So that was, you can't see the visuals there, but uh, that was a time where Colin and I did house reviews, where we did try and do a lot of different things. Um, and we, we did food reviews. Today on Burger Boys, the Burger Boys are trying to find the best burger in Los Angeles. <laughs> we did travel vlogs. This is Colin and Samir's Portland Travel Guide. We did Q&As. All right. Welcome to our first Q&A. We've been on YouTube for 10 years, and I want to just reflect on that for a second. I wrote a post about it on LinkedIn, Colin. Yeah, no, Samir, I read it. Yeah, you I, read I, it. I read your LinkedIn. You do read my <laughs> LinkedIn. That Tuned one, into your LinkedIn. That one was popping, man. 20,000 impressions on <laughs> yeah. that one, just as an FYI. For everyone listening, just to bring you into my world, every morning now, Samir comes in and he says, eh, you do, uh, I wrote about that on LinkedIn. Yeah. So imagine I, something and then say, just slip it in there. I wrote about it on LinkedIn. I go, oh yeah? And then yeah. he goes, it's got a lot of views, man. Got a lot, a lot of, of views. impressions. <laughs> I think you're getting a lot of dopamine hits right <laughs> I'm now. getting too much link, dopamine from, from LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah, it's going um, to your But head. I do enjoy the conversation. It is a completely different conversation than any other social platform. But I, I think did, you just feel safe there. 
I feel right? great. I feel like myself. Post something on Twitter and the, the context is unknown. It may, that tweet may end up anywhere. On LinkedIn, you're in a business environment. People are looking for jobs. It, They're looking to talk about the industry. Here's what's interesting. LinkedIn has completely taken my screen time for Instagram is fully reallocated to LinkedIn right now. I barely open Instagram. It's all LinkedIn. Well, Instagram is a dumpster fire. Whoa, hot take. Okay, so what we were talking about is we've made all Not types true. of- There's a lot of great things on Instagram. Yeah, but, that but, was a hot take, man. Yeah. Um, I guess, I don't know who I should apologize to, but maybe someone. Th- what I wanted to say about that, about the fact that over the last 10 years, we've made so many different types of YouTube videos is that is so much of how I think about being a creator is building in public, reiterating, getting yourself to just publish and like- iterate from there, like make something and then start chipping away at how it fits into what you want to make, how it fits into what the platform wants, how it fits into what the audience wants. And you're just constantly evolving. I feel like even week to week on this show, on our YouTube channel, every piece of content we make is an evolution from the last one. And so I think it was really fun to watch Jimmy react in that way to be like, what the hell? Like when did these guys make house tours and to reflect and be like, wow, we've made a lot of different types of content to find our format. Yeah, we build in public somewhat similarly to how a lot of companies build in public. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the most fun parts of being a creator um, is getting to look back and build in public. All right, let's get to our first question. This one comes from Fernando. Uh, I think this is something that is on a lot of people's minds right now, but he says, how can creators best prepare for the recent market downturn? Do you guys believe creator revenue will be significantly impacted as a result of a possible recession? Yeah, I think that's something definitely that creators should be considering that during the pandemic, there was pretty much one place to advertise and it was the internet. And so advertising rates went way up for creators. Advertising is still the bulk of how most creators make their money. And now that we're coming out of the pandemic, there are many more places for companies to advertise outside of just the internet and creators. Uh, There are, you know, there's an influx of, events that are happening. Even you and I, a lot of our brand partners are starting to throw really, really cool events, but those events are expensive mm-hmm. and the money comes out of the same budgets, yeah, the same marketing budgets that would go to creators. So if you think about it, you know, the pandemic was this once in a lifetime thing where there was an influx of attention an influx of advertising dollars. It's like pulling a slingshot back. Mm. Now the world is opening back up. Something's got to give, you know, you release the slingshot and sort of the opposite effect could happen here. Yeah, I think the important visual to have is that a marketing budget is a pie, right? And during the pandemic, almost, I would say 99% of that pie went to creators. Um, Today, when you look at that, not only is that pie more divided into a more omni-channel marketing effort where maybe there's more billboards, there's live events, there's TV ads, there's just more you know, ways to advertise because the world has opened up again, that pie is also shrinking in an economic downturn. So not only are creators potentially going to get less of a marketing budget, but the, the, the actual marketing budget might shrink in an economic downturn. There also, I heard some, some great takes or read some great takes on this when it came to the investment in smaller uh, in influencers and creators, like micro creators. Niche audiences, I think, will benefit from this because the more niche you are, the more effective you can be. And it's not necessarily about mass audience, right? Mass audience advertising, I think, will be the first thing to go. Niche audience advertising, I don't think, will be 
you know, as, uh, as pulled back. Uh, but that all depends on consumer behavior and consumer spending. The, the best piece of advice that we can give and that I think we're trying to take for ourselves is to diversify your revenue. Make sure you're diversified. If all of your chips are in the advertising bucket, then yeah, this, that could be something that is really impacted. Yeah, so I think going into the recession, it's important to think about, first off, what value can you provide to your audience during a time where people may be losing jobs, they may be looking to make extra money? You know, being empathetic to the environment that potentially may be coming and thinking about, all right, if you are going to now sell something to your audience because advertising rates aren't like they, they were before, what can you sell to them? What value can you provide that would be helpful? Yeah. I also think um, like viewership might increase, mm-hmm. which is interesting, right? So you might have more access because people won't be going out to the movies. They might you know, not go on vacation. So like their escape will be content. Um, which typically happens in a recession or, or in any event like that. So thinking about how to best serve your audience, you know, it's something that we're starting to think about. Um, something that we've wanted to really explore is getting back into courses and education um, and having a direct-to-consumer offering like that. So I think this is kind of pushing us to um, move in that direction, as well as the three days we just spent with Shopify that have really inspired us to move more into that direct-to-consumer relationship. So... High level advice, uh, diversify, uh, prepare yourselves. And I would say like, probably really look at your cash flow. Don't do anything that strains your cash flow too much right now. Next question comes from Joey, AKA Sir Yacht. He says, hey, Colin and Samir, my videographer is editing my YouTube videos and I wanted to know if I should get a different editor. The reason being, I want him to focus on filming and someone else to edit so we can film more projects. I can afford to pay him a percentage of incoming brand deals and a separate editor as well currently. The only issue is my videographer will have four camera setups at minimum for our challenge videos and would be the only one to know how to organize all of that. Any advice is much appreciative. Any advice is much appreciated. Mm. Interesting. So I think, again, this is probably extremely dependent on your cash flow. <laughs> but my advice would be in this situation, it sounds like your videographer is almost like your creative partner and someone who's going to manage production and production logistics. Um, and if you're trying to get ahead in videos or even having four camera setups, I'd probably bring on an editor who's also proficient in cameras so that they can help. Four camera setups is, is significant when it comes to going out to film and having one camera operator oversee all of those. So I'd bring on an editor who's proficient in um, filming so they can help with production as well. But then, yes, I do think if you have the means to do it, find an editor and have that editor just edit and then work with your videographer as a creative partner to go out and keep filming and bringing stuff back for your editor to edit. Now you're going to have to manage the flow because you don't want to overwhelm the editor uh, and just throw a bunch of footage on them. Uh, And then additionally, I think one of the most important things when it comes to hiring is to really think about the time it takes to get someone up and running. So I think that's, that's something that's really important is like the learning curve might be long. So it won't be immediate that your current videographer won't be editing. That might take six weeks, eight weeks, maybe three months. So prepare yourself to invest in this new editor for enough time for them to learn the style, the workflow, all the above. Okay, our next question comes from a musician, and I think we should just play his music before we get into his question. Uh, 
Ever since I touched down, ever since I lost the way your voice sounds, yeah. Things are feeling strange in my body, sweating while I wait in that hotel lobby, and it was unexpected. Okay, good for context. Yeah. Sam, his name's Sam Selton. Sam Setton, sorry. Sam, S-E-T-T-O-N. So go check out and support his music. What's the question? Sam says, I'm an NYC-based indie pop artist and producer who's been releasing music for a while since I stopped doing music full-time a few years ago. I work as a business consultant now. I've been dreaming of starting a YouTube channel. I'm just not sure what direction to go in. Although songwriting and producing music is what I'm best at, I know I don't want to make videos about anything music-related. I'm interested in so many different things, graphic design, solo travel, storytelling, painting, any advice on how to find a direction for the content I can create? I think every day about going to B&H and just buying a camera, but I'm too scared to do it without a plan. Hope to hear back from you, Sam. This kind of relates back to what we talked about earlier in the episode. Like we've made so many different types of videos. I would actually suggest to start by making videos in all of those different categories and see which one feels right. You don't even have to publish them. You can just make them. Like make one about graphic design, uh, make one about solo travel, make one about storytelling, make one about painting, and also watch all of the channels in this category. Like on graphic design, I would look at, uh, what's the creator's name? Kel Lauren really cool graphic designer. I would look at some of the TikTok designers who are um, remixing other logos and giving advice on graphic design. I think those are really cool. Comes to solo travel. I would watch Craig Adams, who's uh, like a solo traveler, solo hiker. Check that out. Um, Painting. I don't know any painting creators, but I would go look at the painting genre and I would just start to like understand these genres really well, see what you like, and then try and reverse engineer or make these. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to the audience you want to speak to before you necessarily start creating. So I would do somewhat of a self audit. And I think that has to do with watching videos from all these sections, Mm. but really thinking about which communities are you a part of in real life? Which communities are you truly a part of online that you would want to bring value to? Like, is there a Reddit thread that you're super active in? Is there a certain area of Twitter that you really like chiming in on a lot? That to me is, will be representative of, what you would actually want to spend time on a video on. Speaking of Reddit, Colin, should we take a question from r slash Colin and Samir? Please. Man, the Reddit, we're closing in on 200 members. Whoa. 200 members in our Reddit. All right. How much karma do we have? I, I don't know. Oh, I have 10 karma. I have 10 karma. Is that good or bad? <sighs> I think that's, that's terrible. That's terrible? Okay, got it. Um, here's the question. This comes from you slash plant Vader. Uh, Colin and Samir, I need to know, do you use these bikes or are they just for minimalist decoration? (laughs) So these are the bikes that are in the background of our show. Um, there's a mix, there's a mixed answer here. You know, there was a time that we used these bikes. Is there? I think let's get real honest with ourselves. We do not use the bikes. We do not use the bikes. But I'm not, I want to be clear that these did not just pop in here and we've never ridden them. (laughs) We We, got them during the pandemic to actually ride around. I used to ride these all the time. The challenge for me I then got an electric bike from Amar at Yes Theory. Unfortunately, that is much cooler than the bike here. Challenge for me, I have a car. Right. That's much faster. It's faster. But a long bike ride is lovely. Now, what happens here is now that these have sat here for this long, the tires are flat. I'm surprised no one else has asked about these bikes. That's true. Yeah. We're, we're working on moving into a new office and having a new set. I wonder if the bikes will come with. Most likely, No. 
Not in the set. They Not won't in be the in set. the set. Office has decided no, but I'm curious to everyone out there, should we bring the bikes okay. with us? Can I give you my first gripe of the episode? Please. Okay. When you are at a public bathroom and they have hand cream and soap and you think the hand cream is soap and then your hands are covered in hand cream and you wash it off mm. like it's soap. It's yeah. a disaster. This, this gripe, uh, I think apparently both of us at some point must have been in the same bathroom. We were. It was the airport in Arizona. It was the airport in Arizona. I covered my hands in lotion. In lotion. And then there's water and lotion. They don't mix they well. They don't mix. It's a disaster. Yeah. Uh, Put it in a different place. Not next to the soap. Yeah, right. that's, that's a serious gripe. This question comes from Jordan Teal. He says, can you break down how you go about negotiating prices for brand integrations based on how many newsletter subscribers you have? I love to do this for my niche, and I'm curious on average what brands are willing to pay per newsletter subscriber or how you go about landing on a number that you ask for. All right, so Jordan, first and foremost, I think it depends on what the topic of your newsletter is. Again, like we talked about earlier, niche audiences are very different from general audiences. So if you have a niche uh, newsletter that's targeting a specific group, um, then you can trade at much higher prices than if you have kind of more of a general newsletter. So first of all, let you know, figure out who your audience is and, and what that community is. Um, that's number one. So for us, with our newsletter, The Published Press, we target the creator economy. It's a very specified group of people that then allows us to have a very specific group of advertisers. So if you're subscribed to The Published Press, you start to see the types of advertisers that are in there. Like we have Teachable, right? We have Jelly Smack, we have Shopify. These are all brands that are wanting to communicate with our audience of people who work in and work with creators and who are creators. Yeah. So, you know, comparatively the rates that we would get would probably be higher than or comparable to maybe a company like morning brew who has a massive email mm-hmm. list, but it's not as targeted as ours. It's a little bit more general. It's more general. Yeah. So I would say like in a niche community, depending on your niche, let's say it's finance or let's say it's e-commerce, you can get up to $100 CPM. Um, I would not base this on per subscriber. I would really look at, you know, the subscriber base, look at how many people are opening it and then start to explore it as CPM. Um, So really start to think about like how many people are opening it and then multiply that by a CPM. Um, $30 $30 is a good premium CPM. And again, you can work your way up to a hundred depending on how targeted that community is and what the market that you're in is willing to pay. For just one quick example, we did a video one time where Ian from SeatGeek looked at our brand and, and tried to evaluate how much he would pay to integrate with our brand. And it was like a $20 CPM and he offered us like 2000 bucks. It's just not a deal we would take, but we aren't a good fit for SeatGeek. SeatGeek's looking for more mass creators. So people are getting millions and millions of views, talking to more general audiences. That's not a good fit for us. So I'd really look at who's a good fit for your content and approach them first. All right, this question comes from Garrett Gourley. Says, I run a Lego blog. Speaking of niche, I run a Lego blog, podcast, and YouTube channel. Uh, Back to Brick is what it's called and have had intermittent success. The community is very saturated and hard to break out. I'm wondering if I've niched myself into a corner and I will not have a community influence that I'd like. Do I need to branch out to my other hobbies or keep going? I don't know why I niched myself into a corner. Yeah, that, that was, that was pretty funny. 
like that. What's funny about that? I don't There's know. I don't know why that's that. funny. It just feels funny. Like you can back yourself into a corner or you can niche yourself into a corner. I don't know anything about the Lego niche. Have we been niched into a corner? I think we have. At I some think point. we've niched ourselves into a corner. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a funny thing to think about. But I, I think right now we're comfortably niched into the corner. I like being in this corner. I think this is a yeah, wonderful this corner is a fun to be one. in. I would um, say with the lacrosse network, we oh, that's a good, we that's were a good example. niched into that corner. And at some point we did feel a little bit limited. Like I yeah. remember with some of our videos, we, we felt like there was a cap to how many people could sort of see them or enjoy them. For sure. Yeah. I think, um, and it didn't seem to be growing at that time. It wasn't growing. There's a cap. And I think that's a really important thing to note is that there is a cap when it comes to whatever niche you're in. And if you feel like you've hit your head on that cap and you're not inspired to create for that community, then I think that's the moment where you need to think about branching out. That, that's the most important thing. If you have a passionate audience of 500 people um, who absolutely love your content and you love serving that group of 500 people, then I think there's so many ways to build a business based on that or build at least a stream of income. But if you're not enjoying it anymore and you you personally feel like you've niched yourself into a corner such that you can't express yourself or create and you're uninspired to create, that's a dangerous place to be. So I would really just take a step back and say, am I still inspired to create for this community? And if no, then yes, it's time to branch out. All right. This question comes from Hung Fam. It says, how important is editing music and thumbnails for success on YouTube? I've seen some daily vlog channels with over a million subscribers. These are raw vlogs with minimal editings and just screenshots as thumbnails. Is it a good idea for me to copy the strategy? Ooh, that's good. So basically what he's talking about is channels, let's say even like Emma Chamberlain um, or, or Casey Neistat where it's like vlog channels and it's just a random frame uh, as the thumbnail from the video or something that feels like a random frame. And is that a realistic strategy when you're starting out? I think if you're just starting out, you need a little bit of a mix between the videos that are aimed at finding new audience and distribution, and then the videos that are easier to make potentially that retain the audience you do have, right? Like even Emma Chamberlain, when she would do a video like testing Trader Joe's new food items or something like that, that was more of a, a mass audience video where you do see food reviews that get millions and millions of views. But if someone new clicks on that video and they like her personality, they'll watch the video titled, you definitely caught me making soup. Right. With, I, with, with just some random thumbnail. I think one of the big, big things is a lot of those creators have pretty big audiences, maybe somewhere else or have established some rapport and relationship. It all comes down to trust. If an audience can trust you, then you start to get to a point where, yes, you can play a little bit more with the thumbnails. I think Victoria Paris is a good example. She has trust with her community via TikTok. And so coming onto YouTube, she's a little bit looser when it comes to thumbnails. She does still have concepts in her thumbnails and titles, you know, that are still interesting um, video ideas, but... I think you're going to have to work to build trust and there is going to be a balance probably in the beginning of like 90-10 when it comes to concept-based thumbnails that do kind of suggest something, you know, or, or an idea of a video that's a little bit more engaging, pulls a little bit of curiosity and maybe has more mass appeal. And then 10% of your uploads that are more personal. Um, and then over time that can meet in the middle at 50 and then hopefully you get to a point like Emma Chamberlain where she can just but a single word in her title and a picture of her face and it works. So, yeah. 
I'd like to propose something to everyone that has been enjoying and listening to Creator Support. Okay. I feel like a gripe that I have is that I don't have enough gripes or I'm not writing down my gripes when I have them and then I forget them. Mm. And I would appreciate hearing other people's gripes. Oh, interesting. So, you know, submit a question for us to answer, but maybe also submit a gripe. Two for one. Maybe we end this episode with a gripe from creator Matty Benedetto from Unnecessary Inventions. We were with him in Arizona and he was very eager to share a gripe with us that he had with Colin. So we'll leave you with that. And also, before we play that clip, I just want to thank everyone who has reviewed our podcast. Uh, We are almost at a thousand reviews on Spotify, which is really cool. And that really helps our show. We actually cracked the top 30 podcasts in entrepreneurship this week, which is so cool. So thank you guys so much for reviewing and helping us out with that. Subscribe to our newsletter, The Published Press, if you haven't already. That's where you can submit questions for this show, Creator Support. And we'll see you here on Monday. All right. Now for Maddie Benedetto's gripe from Unnecessary Inventions. I did have a gripe about the podcast. First thing I said to him. So I listened to Monday's episode and you guys brought me up. Thank you. He called me Matthew Benedetto. And I was like, are you my mother? I'm like, why did you call me Matthew? (laughs) 